Hello, you're listening to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Just how big a problem is online fraud? One figure puts it at 130 billion US dollars a year. And in fact, the true figure could be higher. Victims are losing money through phishing scams, card not present fraud, attacks on online banking and the move away from cash. And despite the efforts of law enforcement and the banks, fraud is still growing. How then can the sector deal with the problem? According to Daniel Cohen of RSA Security, it's not just an issue for retailers and card companies. All businesses are at risk and all businesses can adopt anti-fraud techniques as part of their security strategy. After all, criminals go where the money is. begin with, money is always a very uh, forceful or powerful motivator. Um, and since the beginning of, of kind of cybercrime, if you think about it, you know, it was always about the money to begin with. You think about the first malware, you know, the Zeus variants, they were also about, you know, they were bankers, the first bankers, um, you know, to go out and steal access to financial accounts to, to drain accounts. Um, when you think about payments uh, specifically, and you know the size of the problem in the market. Um, I, th- you know, looking at different numbers and different reports. Um, if you think about card not present fraud, uh, so you know shopping online with your credit card, um, this is predicted to be a hundred and thirty dollar, hundred and thirty billion dollar problem uh, by twenty twenty three. Um, so huge amounts of money uh, are being targeted, um, and obviously we have to be. You know, with the changing landscape, and and it's constantly changing. But you know, recently with COVID, and, and we're becoming more digital and, and moving more online. Um, you know, that's only uh, increasing the problem, exasperating the problem uh, that we face. What's driving the fraud? Is it organized crime? Is it more casual crime? Is it carelessness on behalf of consumers and merchants? What's causing the problem to increase prior to COVID, anyway? So it's 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 both, uh, Stephen. You know, obviously there are the elements of organized crime, and and you and you can see, you know, as as you monitor the deep dark web and you look at the dynamics, um, and we've actually published some very interesting reports also looking at the dynamics and the relationships within social media, and how you know bad guys use social media and analyzing the relationships. Um, you know, between different actors, there's there's obviously the element of organized crime and, and how organized crime targets, uh, you know, the consumer population at large. Um, but there's also, you know, the nickel and dimes, the, the script kiddies, uh, you know, the, the people that are looking to make a quick buck. Um, and there's business for, for both use cases. Obviously, when you look at the organized crime uh, and, and they're running operations, that are a lot more sizable. They'll be running, you know, the muling rings. Um, they'll be running the counterfeit rings, and, and obviously, you know, large-scale operations. Whereas, you know, the smaller uh, petty criminals, they'll be, you know, launching uh, 
the phishing attacks. They'll be launching any any kind of very specific attack and perform as a link in the cybercrime chain. And before COVID, well before COVID, you know, you think about cybercrime, the evolution of cybercrime. It's it's long evolved into a service based economy. And so, you know, your bottom feeders uh, will usually be kind of those service providers. They'll launch a phishing attack, steal a whole bunch of credit cards, sell them upstream to the credit card store. Um, but that credit card store will, you know, good chances is that's operated by a ring. The stock of that credit card store is, you know, duplicated across many different credit card stores. Um, and as you move up the ring, you know, they're cashing out, they're making more and more so how quickly is this growing? So you're this figure of $130 billion. Uh, where were we, say, five years ago? How much of an increase have we seen? So within five years, um, I'd have to look at the numbers. Um, but you, you think about kind of market growth. Uh, the standard market growth in, in kind of the e-com space is 10%. So 10 to 12%. Every year, we're spending more and more and more money uh, online. I think when you look at and again, pre-COVID, when you look at what's happening in the world and the digitalization of payments and alternative payment methods, and and just that move to make um, the spending of money more efficient, easier, frictionless, um, that has been growing consistently. And as the world is doing that, as we're making you know the the, the spending of money more accessible. Uh, fraudsters are expanding, and you can think about it, we're, we're expanding the attack surface. There are more ways for fraudsters to now steal the money if it's peer-to-peer payments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so by expanding the attack surface, we're giving the fraudsters you know, more opportunity to go after the money. And we're definitely seeing, um, kind of, you know, even when you look at, at, at you know, our numbers um, in our analysis, you know, we're seeing more attacks, just an example of, of kind of digitalization. Um, so the mobile channel that we track, you know, payments coming through, you know, native mobile apps, native browsers um, has grown significantly. I mean, just year over year, if you look at the second quarter, we're up nearly 30% in transactions coming from mobile. So the growth is there, you know, the bad guys being opportunistic, looking at all, you know, this green field that they have are are obviously targeting it and capitalizing on it. Talk us through some of the types of attacks. So I guess the most simple attack to begin with is phishing attacks. And, and phishing used to be very predictable. You know, when we think about our operation, you know, phishing would kick off usually on Mondays as as uh, America would start waking up. And, you know, phishing, we'd start to see fish climb and the attacks climb. They'd usually quiet down around the weekend um, they'd pick up during the year, uh, you know, in summertime, we'd start seeing tourism-type uh, phishing attacks. Uh, during tax season, April, we'd see April-type attacks, uh, tax season-type attacks. What we're seeing recently with phishing attacks is that we can't predict it anymore. With the fraudsters now working from home, if you will, and their victims now working from home. And, you know, when you think about, you know, you think about us, uh, we're a lot more available. You know, our phones are with us. The, the lines have blurred very much between work work time and home time. So we're more available. We're more responsive when we're getting emails. Um, and we're now seeing also with the fraudsters that they're basically into, you know they're working now seven days a week, twenty four seven. You know they're not they're not resting because their victims are also a lot more available. So you think about you know the the number one method of attack continues to be phishing. 
Um, we identified about 50,000 attacks in the last quarter. Um, and phishing presented almost 50% of that. So about 43% of all the attacks were phishing attacks. So that's, that's your bread and butter. Sending out emails that are very, um, they generate a very emotional response. It's either your credit card is being compromised, click this link. Uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, fraudulent transactions on your bank account, click this link. Um, so either instilling fear in the users and getting them to uh, respond via fear, or it could be, you know, um, donations. So donating to, you know, COVID fund, uh, whatever, you know, COVID fund name um, and getting you to, you know, uh, donate quote unquote money to a good cause, but largely there's a fraudster uh, behind that. Um, so phishing, you know, social engineering, the users continues to be uh, the number one uh, vertical for crime. And we're seeing these attacks primarily focused on the individual rather than the institutions. Is that correct? When we think about the, um, you know, the enterprise type attacks, um, those are more spear phishing attacks. So they're, they're well thought out. They're well planned out and ahead. They identify individuals to begin with that they want to target. You know, they'll try and find an accountant in the accounting department and try and, you know, social engineer them into a wiring money to a supplier's account. Um, also known as, as, as business email compromise. And that's one type of fraud. The phishing that we're talking about is more the consumer fraud. It's blasting out tens of thousands of emails and then hoping that, you know, three, four, five percent um, of the recipients will, you know, will click the link. Um, and so those are the two types of phishing. And, and again, this is largely the, the consumer uh, blasting out type fish. So whose responsibility or whose mandate is it to protect these consumers so that's a good question um you know it obviously begins with law enforcement and but obviously law enforcement have their hands full when, when you think about again you know coming back to these phishing attacks and they can't chase after every single phishing attacks institutions you know the financial institutions have a responsibility to protect their customer um, and that's kind of where you know the, the cybersecurity market kind of steps in um, and we help the financial institutions deal with these types of threats, take down these accounts, and prevent additional victims, um, you know, from from clicking links. Um, and so, you know, and, and you think about regulation like PSD2, again, putting the onus of reducing fraud on the financial institutions, um, it largely comes down to the financial institutions taking the relevant steps, um, you know, via products, via solutions, via managed services, to uh, reduce the fraud. At, at the end of the day, there's only so much we can expect from a consumer. Um, you know, sure, you know, think before you click, be more aware of, you know, the things, the emails that you're receiving. Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, the onus lies with the financial institutions to prevent uh, the fraud. So what's the role of the retailer in that? And I'll use the term retailer reasonably broadly because we've got a lot of people paying for subscription services online and other digital services we can talk about b2b in a moment but in terms of consumer services many of which are now online and presumably that's where we've seen a lot of the uptick in both spending and fraudulent activity as well so specifically for retailers and this is kind of in, in, in the context of psd2 um, and in the context of, of the 3d secure uh, ecosystem um, so when you think about you know what the european regulator is trying to do you know they're trying to to, to promote a stronger connection between uh, merchants um, or retailers, online retailers, 
and the financial institutions so that together they can, you know, they can work together to reduce fraud. Um, so 3D Secure is basically a protocol that allows merchants and issuers to, to communicate in real time as the transactions are taking place. And so think about your checkout experience from, you know, pick an online retailer, um, you're adding to your cart, you're going through, you know, the shopping experience. On the one hand, the retailer, you know, they want to reduce fraud. They don't want, you know, money to, they don't want the goods because fraud for the retailer in many cases hits twice. They lose the goods, right? They ship you the goods and then they also don't get the money and the wire, the money isn't transferred from the issuers. Um, so the retailer is looking out to prevent fraud. But when we think about, again, the context of the issuers and the retailers, the banks and the retailers working together, that's where you know protocols like 3D Secure come into play. And then as you're checking out from said retailer, your merchant, the retailer, and uh, the financial institutions are shaking hands. Um, and this is, again, happening in the background in real time as you're checking out. And they're shaking hands. They're assessing the risk of this transaction. Is this really Stephen or is this a fraudster claiming to be Stephen or who has stolen Stephen's credit card and using that credit card to check out? Um, and that's where, you know, uh, uh, we see, and specifically when we think about uh, Europe, that's where we see these, the uptick of merchants now adopting the 3D Secure Protocol to better, again, together with the, with the banks, better fight uh, fraud. So once again, then we split the fraud down into two risks because there's the risk of the retailer being defrauded of the goods. And then there's the risk of someone in the value chain being defrauded of the money. So that could be the retailer. It could be ultimately the bank or the credit card company. How do you balance through the protocols that are out there, through law enforcement, through consumer education, all these different elements, because you've got, at the one hand, people trying to take money. On the other hand, you've got people trying to obtain goods and service fraudulently, which is potentially a growing problem too. To answer that question, Stephen, it's, it's really, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point back at PSD2 and kind of what the regulator is trying to achieve here. And that, and that is really to, to increase the awareness of fraud and, um, and, and kind of direct or, or push the market. Because the merchant shook hands with the bank in real time, the merchant can now shift liability of fraud to the financial institution, and the financial institution is now responsible for um, uh, compensating the merchant uh, for that fraud. Um, so when, when you think about the entire kind of chain of the payment, starting with the merchant, moving across, it ultimately lies um, with the issuer. But we're seeing you know, that, that, that partnership uh, being formed to better work together to prevent uh, the fraud. And of course, the financial institutions potentially have more resources to bring to play here, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, there are many different steps in the in the transaction flow, in the payment flow, that they can place different controls um, uh, to monitor uh, for fraud. And let's not forget that ultimately, it's, it's the bank that has a relationship with the consumer. Um, I could be pulling out a credit card and buying at some, you know, mindpawretailsomewhere.com. Um, I don't have a relationship with that retail. I don't have a buying history with that uh, retailer, um, but it's it's my bank that has a relationship with me. And in the back of my mind, you know, myself as a consumer, I have an expectation that it would be the bank that protects me from you know these online shopping. So, one of the additional controls that the bank has is the ability to reach out to me. Um, you know, by SMS, by phone call if needed, and say, hey, Daniel, is this you now buying something at, you know, my and pa retailer? Um, and so, you know, because 
because the the the, the issuer has that view, has a, a broader view um, of the cardholder, of the history of the cardholder. Um, they have more tools and more capabilities to run uh, the risk assessment uh, specifically for a given transaction. But how big an overhead is this then for the banks, for the issuers? Are we seeing a greater percentage of transactions being fraudulent or are we simply seeing more fraud in cash terms because there are more transactions online? So we refer to those as volume and value. And I think, and to try and answer both questions, so two birds, one stone, if you think about attempted fraud, so in every single market in the world, there's attempted fraud. There's a bad guy out there trying to steal money. And you know, that, that's the truth of it. And in different geos, there's different rates of attempted fraud. So UK, for example, the, the attempted fraud is around two to three percent. Um, so let's, you know, let's take an example. Let's say there are, you know, a hundred transactions, each transaction is one dollar or ten dollars. So that's a thousand dollars of total transactions. If the attempted fraud is 3%, then there's $30 that could be lost um, to fraud. And that's where, now, if we don't do anything, those 30%, first of all, the attempted fraud will probably grow because it's easy to defraud in this market. Um, um, but if we don't t- take any steps, then we're going to lose $30 to fraud in every one of these cycles. And so when you think about the overhead, what would it, what would the overhead be to prevent uh, those $30 from being lost. Now, if it's going to cost uh, the issuer $10 to place all these solutions in place and prevent uh, $30 of fraud, then the overhead um, is not there. Uh, in fact, they've managed to save uh, you know, additional money. Um, so that's, you know, when you think about the dynamics of the market and, and the overheads, at the end of the day, there is, there is money to be, uh, to be lost right? There's a certain fraud rate or attempted fraud that's going to happen. Now, what do you do about it? What steps do you take to prevent uh, that fraud? And in most cases, and, and again, looking globally, uh, in most cases, it, it, it doesn't come to a position where the issuer has to spend more money in trying to prevent fraud than the money that it would have lost if it hadn't done anything. The other aspect, certainly from the retailer's point of view, is convenience. And you know, over the years, we've seen different models being tried and different forms of verification being tried. And increasingly, the emphasis is on trying to do this in the background, isn't it? So that you're not creating friction between the customer and the retailer, or indeed between the retailer and the bank. The market has been evolving towards, you know, becoming more focused on the experience. How do we on the one hand, and and it's always the same side of the two coins of, of the same coin, uh, you know, usability and security. I can obviously prevent fraud altogether by challenging every single transaction. I'll I'll send you an SMS with a one-time password with every time you buy, but that's obviously creating a lot of friction. Um, and the, and the and the market and the industry have already you know long been moving in that direction. And again, I'm coming back to the 3D Secure protocol because in the past, 3D Secure was very uh, frictionful um, to the point where where you would have checked when you, when you check out from a retailer an online retailer you know you're on your browser you're checking out from your cart what happens is you get a pop up screen that comes up and is trying to now authenticate it's almost like a phishing attack taking place and that was in the older versions of the protocol the new versions of the protocol leave the authentication experience with the merchant um, so that the merchant controls the experience the merchant can make it as frictionless uh, as possible. Um, to allow 
uh, a faster checkout time. And again, coming back to that point around, you know, for example, um, the issuer knowing uh, the user and having that relationship with the, with the cardholder. When I say user, the, you know, the consumer, the cardholder, um, you know, the 3D Secure, the new version of the 3D Secure protocol even caters for, um, you know, usability flows where you check out, the merchant says, thank you very much for your order, and then sends the authentication request uh, to the issuing bank. From the merchant perspective, the retailer's perspective, they've provided that frictionless flow, you know, the one-click uh, shopping experience, and only post-order uh, post does the authentication experience take place. Now, that's fine because the merchant is now holding on to the goods. They're not shipping the goods. They're waiting for the issuer to come back and say, yes, this transaction is approved. But to your point about around frictionless, that is now a possibility. So the merchant can provide a frictionless uh, checkout experience. If something goes wrong later in the authentication, that's when you know they still have the opportunity to stop uh, the transaction. How do we deal with non-physical goods in that scenario then? Because if I want to, say, download a movie, um, I can do that instantly or as instantly as matters not. For cases like that, you know, you think about Netflix or, you know, Apple TV or, you know, pick your pick your streaming um, um, service. You know, the first thing to happen is that you enroll your credit card. Um, that enrollment activity can also be sent through, you know, that, that handshake, the so-called handshake between, you know, this merchant, the retail, the service provider, um, and the issuer can take place as you're enrolling your card. So I can be authenticating while you're enrolling, even before you spent your first dollar on buying, you know, the movie or the TV series. Um, so that is also something that's uh, catered for, you know, in this in the ecosystem today. And again, it's very focused towards that frictionless experience. You know, we haven't even spoke about, you know, gaming. You know, you're on your Xbox, you're on, you know, your 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 PlayStation. How do you buy a game in the PlayStation, and how do we authenticate you in the PlayStation? Um, and even that is catered for, you know, in in the new uh, protocol. So again, trying to make it as frictionless as usable as possible. You think about Internet of Things, you're buying stuff on your Apple Watch. Um, you know, the real estate is shrinking, the screen real estate is shrinking, and yet we can still authenticate your transactions to provide that frictionless user experience. So how do you see this evolving? How do you see the technology evolving, particularly into machine learning and AI? So we're going to see a lot more of it. Um, absolutely. I mean, the technology is going to continue to evolve to enable those frictionless flows, to allow consumers to use their money and when they want to use it and how they want to use it. And again, keeping in mind, you know, the example of the 3% attempted fraud, most of the transactions are real people trying to use their, you know, their honestly earned money. And, and we have to allow for that. You know, most travelers on planes are not terrorists, uh, you know, 99% point, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the same applies to the e-commerce space. Most of these transactions are, you know, honest people trying to use their money we have to, the technology has to be able to cater for that. And yet, you know, remains, you know, remains this dark side of these fraudsters that are trying to, you know, manipulate and steal money. And in order to balance the need for, um, uh, you know, number one, allow these payments that take place and number two, prevent the fraud. That's where the machine learning comes into play. Being able to analyze, you know, these vast amounts of data Another point I'll make is that more data is being made available um, through, you know, through the evolutions of these protocols, the in the handshakes, um, you know, in, in to, to to further promote this partnership between the retailers and the banks, 
Um, retailers can share more information about uh, uh, the transaction and the details around the transactions to allow the issuers to better assess the risk with this with more data being available to them. So we're going to continue to see that evolution. We're going to continue obviously to see uh, the artificial intelligence elements become more intelligent, more knowledgeable. Um, and as we work through this, you know, we'll 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 be we'll be in a better position to achieve that holy grail of yes, no, of being able to say, you know, with with very high degrees of confidence that this transaction is fraud and this transaction is legitimate. And it's interesting, though, that over the last few months, we have seen a very big shift, at least in Western economies, away from cash. Do you anticipate that that shift away from cash will be a permanent change in behavior uh, towards mobile payments and card payments, online payments? And if it is, what does that do for the fraud landscape? So I would say yes. Um, and you're, you see governments, different governments around the world. Um, and in particular, also, you see this, it's more expedited in, in developing nations where they're completely skipping uh, cash in, in some degree. They're even skipping plastic credit cards and going immediately to alternative payments. Um, but when we talk about alternative payments, there has to be a distinction um, between let's call it a real alternative payment and a vehicle. Um, by vehicle, I mean, you know, for example, a digital wallet. A digital wallet could come across as an alternative payment, but behind that digital wallet lies a credit card number that is enrolled into that uh, digital wallet. So you know, that's still um, being treated in the industry as a credit card payment. And protected as such, it'll you know largely still be the wallets. If it's you know the Apple wallet, the Google wallets, um, but again, behind those wallets is a credit card number, um, and it's you know from a security perspective, it remains a a standard credit card payment. Um, and again, it hits the issuer, and, and the issuer still assesses the risk as it did. So, how important then? Just to wrap up, how important is it for chief information security officers in organizations across the spectrum to be aware of payment fraud in all its forms? So whether you're in the public sector, whether you're a retailer, whether you're in financial services and whether you're in digital services, is this something that you feel security teams need to be more aware of, even if they're not necessarily involved in the detail of the implementation? There's always going to be fraud and the fraud is going to vary, you know, as, as you mentioned, Stephen, between the different types of organizations. If, if you're a consumer-facing organization, you'll experience a certain type of fraud. If you're a B2B-facing organization, you're going to experience a different type of fraud. But you're going to experience fraud. And, and like we said in the beginning, money is a very powerful motivator. Um, and 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 you think about these fraudsters, they want the money. And some of these fraudsters are more enterprising, some are less enterprising, some will do the homework on organizations and target these organizations. But fraud will remain a big, big problem uh, for organizations across all the different verticals. And my recommendation, and then specifically when you think about you know today with, with corona and, and, and the misuse of corona and the different social engineering scams, um, you know, security officers have to think about where they can be bleeding money. Where can they be losing money? And again, in business-to-business facing enterprises, uh, business email compromise, BEC attacks are, are, are a huge problem. Um, I think recently the FBI released a paper uh, on business email compromise tagging the problem at $3 billion, um, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, so there's there's always going to be fraud. You always have to, again, weigh the cost of defending against that fraud um, with all the other things that you're defending as, as a chief security officer. But it's, you know, in my mind, it should definitely be an item on the chief security officer's list of things to, uh, to look out for. RSA Security's Daniel Cohen on how businesses are by no means immune to the growing problem of online fraud. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Our next programme will be on Tuesday the 17th of November, when we'll hear how cybersecurity will operate in what researchers are calling the grey zone. I hope you can join us then. That, though, is all for this week's episode. You can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thanks again for listening.